Hi, once again, listeners. This is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. In these episodes, we talk with one of our consultants exploring one of our different types of engagements. We describe the issues those engagements were designed to address and how we solve them. So today we're going to discuss a topic that we're, we recently were asked to help with around the concept of managing development partners. <clears throat> Specifically, how do you build a relationship of trust between your external development partners and your internal development? And what do you do when that relationship starts to fray? We are joined once again in the studio by Construct Senior Fellow Earl Beattie from beautiful downtown Maltby, Washington, who tackles this issue with me. Welcome back to the team's studio, Earl. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm I'm really kind of surprised you had me back after that last incident with the chicken and the snake. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We, that shall be. Yeah, the, the doctor said you might have some trouble remembering <laughs> it. It was. It was. I gotta say, it was a great way to get plucked. <laughs> uh, you and I have long history with chickens. We we won't go there. So so today's episode is going to focus on some research you recently conducted with the help of. Uh, a number of our clients, into how to maximize the relationship between internal staff and external partners. And so I thought as a little background, I think it's fair to say that staff capability or bandwidth have always seemed to lag the amount of work that teams have in front of them. Um, things like backlogs, product owner prioritization, uh, Kanban whip limits, all these things are, are typically meant to apply some kind of a governor to how much a team can take on. Um, some organizations retain internal staff, add a few staff with contractor badges to kind of handle peak needs. Others actually enter into more formal external partner support contracts. And what you found is those contracts aren't always um, sort of a, 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 I don't know, a bed of bandwidth roses, so to speak. It's 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 not just bandwidth, though, right? It's one of we see for a lot of our organizations, they're in old school disciplines and trying to get the top talent is really hard too. So good there's point. some capability things in there somewhere as well. Really good point. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. So you know, given that backdrop, how about you set you know the origin for this ask and, and, and this will set the context for the conversation today. Yeah. So the original ask was from an old school medical device company and it it had that, you know, do we have the top talent? It had a good talent. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with this talent, but it's not getting the cutting edge talent. You know, the employees have been with them for decades. And so they're schooled in one way of doing it. And so to try something new, to bring in new capabilities, new opportunities, they really wanted to work with a partner that that had a fresher approach. Yeah, and there's some bandwidth, obviously, but it's really about that fresh approach. And, and of course, uh, there is always some some concerns about hiring and firing and, and handling all that. So they wanted to start bringing in some more partners to give them that fresh approach. And the internal staff was reacting like, you know, long old school. What do you mean? This has been our job. What's our future here? What's going on? And so how do we bring those partners in and still get the most when this team feels threatened on the inside? That was their original question. So they wanted us to go out and talk to our clients and based upon our uh, sort of understanding of the of the industry and, and what we've seen and say, what do you do with this to make sure they don't feel so threatened? Or how do you make them get past that to work effectively with a partner? 
Well, that's good. That's a really, I think that, that, that sets the stage pretty well. And, and I, I have to say that I was involved in some of the asks for some of my clients and they were all very willing to, to participate. And so I will say, uh, thank you to any of them who actually might be listening to, to hear what other folks had to say. But that was actually, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was encouraging to me that, that, that people really wanted to talk about this issue. It seems like it's more, it's more prevalent than maybe we might have thought about. Right. And when I, when I, created a draft a white paper and ran it by all those who have participated, they actually liked it a lot and said they were going to use it because while they had input, they got a, even a broader picture from the overall white paper from our findings. Yeah. yeah. So along the way with your research, you, you um, sort of boiled it down to um, six principles that you developed based upon the responses you got. So I thought what we would do today yeah. is sort of talk about each as a way to expose some of the, con- the concerns that you heard. And and you did a good job of sort of framing like the main idea that you came in terms of a principle and then so the actions you feel like they made the most sense to help cure the concerns. So the, the first and maybe the most important one was this notion of transparency of purpose. Uh, there's, there, there's really nothing worse than a bunch of staff showing up on a team when the internal staff were not briefed on why, right? Why, why are you doing that? So tell us the main idea here. Well, uh, uh, you're right. There's six of them that came out, and some of them, uh, you know, they start out with the well, of course. And <laughs> from what the client, when I presented this to them, came up with, well, yeah, that one we kind of knew. But when you when you look at it, the transparency of purposes really boils down to a couple key points here. One is that you have smart people to begin with. If you if you assume that you have reasonably good people, they're smart, and they know something's up. Now, when they know something's up, but they really don't know why, they don't know all the background, fear, uncertainty, and doubt is going to start to take over. And the FUD people will start saying, oh, and they'll start inventing reasons. And the reasons they'll invent will typically be be bad reasons, the most awful things they can invent. So one transparency of purpose is just there to stop the FUD. The second aspect of it really was this idea of once you stop the FUD, they may still not be happy, but what we know is that people can disagree with you and still move forward. That is, they can say, I don't like where this is going. I don't think you're doing the right thing, but I understand I've been heard. I have my concerns at least understood, so I will be willing to help you move forward on this. So those are the two things Transparency for is really started saying. They started saying, hey, you got to deal with the FUD and you got to give people a direction so they can help you go there. Yeah, I mean, and in the worst case, you want to you want to get to the point where you disagree, but still have people commit, right? You don't you don't you don't right. want disagreement and disconnect and and you know background sniping and things like that going. You want you want to kind of eliminate that by doing some things. So what 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 you know the obvious course of action here is communication and and very specific communication, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, for them, I had very specific communication in mind, but more generally for potentially our our listeners today, one is going having some sort of presentational event, a town hall, a presentation, a video recording that you put together saying, here's explaining about what we've been doing, where we think we're going, um, and how you can help us get there. Because you want this to be able to be as broad as possible, and, and hopefully a medium that they can call back up and look at it again. Because the first time they hear the message, they're going to have an emotional response. And so you often have to give this message a couple of times, not just once. So it's not just, hey, I told you, and then we forgot about it, but put it in a medium and then find another way to tell them and find a third way uh, to help them understand where they're going. And when you do that, you want to have sort of the kind of short, medium, and long-term 
frameworks in mind? What's happening in the short term? Those concrete actions you're doing today. Where you where do you think you're going to be doing in the medium term? Your best guesses and your long term goals. You can't really make plans that far out, but you really want to talk about your long term goals. What's your overall intent? so that they can help out and they can feel comforted a little bit, perhaps if your intent is not to replace them all, for example, but to, you know, augment the staff or get some new capabilities that they can learn. That might be a really good thing. And even if it's to replace them, they're going to figure that out anyhow. And so yeah. let them know so they can start making appropriate plans as well. That's true. But but do stick to what you know, right? Don't make stuff up. I had one person who said, yeah, I wasn't quite sure. So I took my best guesses what I thought leadership was doing and it just mucked everything up. <laughs> So, so you know, stick and say, I don't know this. I'm looking into it. I'm asking about it. Tell them be honest when you don't know as well. That's excellent. That's that. I mean, that, that I think in a tense environment, I think some managers might might have a tendency to over overthink and over communicate and 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 extrapolate. And you know, I think people can extrapolate on their own. They don't need help. <laughs> they can they can right, read into the tea leaves thing. if there's something that's not a good message for them in general. So I think that makes sense. So, yeah. I mean, of course, when you're being transparent um, about working with a development partner, there needs to be some sort of working agreement, right? I mean, you call this out by setting clear contractual terms. That's the next principle we talked about. So what's the main idea there? Well, the idea of the clear contractual terms recommendation was what we were hearing is that there you will be working with a partner. There will be a contract in place. And the better the contract, the more clear how the relationship works, the better off you're going to be. And there are a couple things that uh, our, our research, um, and I just want to mention something about the research here. We really has an interesting position here at Constructs when we do this research. Not only do we have the context like you spoke of, Mark, where we can reach out to our clients and ask them directly, because we have clients all over the planet. So that's a really good resource. But the TSPs, the technical service providers, have tons of experience as well. They've been to all over the place. They've seen a lot of things that work. Um, they're very knowledgeable, read deeply in this, these areas. And then, of course, we have all of Steve's contacts, all the other notaries in the industry to, to tap it into as well. And so what we heard from them, and this one was kind of interesting, is that when you have this contract and you're saying these clear contractual terms, you really need to sort of own the product. That is, okay. you are the owner. You're not, you're not buying a vendor to own everything for you. You've got to own something here. And typically, you've got to own the requirements. You probably want to own the overall technical bets that you want to make, right? They're going to recommend an architecture or something like that, but you've got to own it. You've got to say, this is our decision. And you have to have a, me measure, a way of verifying that they're actually fulfilling the contract somehow. So there's three areas that you want to really think about owning is requirements, architecture, and verification as you set up this contract. Okay. And once you've done that, then you can start looking at, okay, how are we going to make this relationship work? So we're going to do things around the communications. And you may come up with uh, some sort of responsibility matrix or something like that. But you want to be clear about who is responsible for what part and how you go about choosing new responsibilities. Because a lot of things still have to be figured out. When contract signing happens, we don't know a lot yet. And we have to have a way of the contract has to talk about how we're going to figure things out, not necessarily have everything figured out. This is particularly true when we talk about what they're going to deliver as a vendor. Um, because, you know, it would be nice if we could see a year, a year and a half out in the future, know exactly what they're going to deliver and say, here's the acceptance criteria. 
But reality has imposed, especially our more agile ways of working, we want to be able to change based upon really understanding what's going on. And so the contract should start about how to change the deliverables, not just what they are, but how we're going about changing and managing that deliverable set as we go forward. And that's near and dear to my heart as a sales director here at Constructs, because certainly I get involved with contractual obligations and and clauses and change management and things like that. So you you know you want to you certainly want to allow the changes to occur, but you want to have expectations set about what they mean. And, and yeah, I'll give you a little dirty secret, Mark. Whenever you write up an LOA for and involve me, and you say, "Does this look right?" I just say whatever because I know it's going to change the moment I start talking <laughs> with the customer and going on there. So as long as it's in the right zone, I'm like, it's close. Well, enough. this is the trust thing. Right. This is the trust. Trust but verify, perhaps. I don't know. Right. Right. I've only had twice now in 20 years where a uh, vendor comes back and says, Well, you wrote this in the contract. I'm like, Oh, crap. We did, didn't we? <laughs> that wasn't okay. on my watch. Couldn't have been. Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned a few things along the way there. What, what are some other good practices that a team can follow to make this a little easier on everybody? Well, again, we got this short and long-term kind of thing here. Short-term deliverables, you can be very precise about. Let's let's get those down, like how we're going to set the relationship, the first kickoff meetings, those kinds of things. And then have long-term sort of aspirational deliverables as opposed to hardcore deliverables. Say, we're going to go to these goals. We're going to head in that direction. Okay. Um, one of the more important things you can set up right up fat is, is – uh, they're called, you know, most people are familiar with RACI, R-A-C-I, Responsible, Accountable, Consulted, um, Informed. But also there's another one called RAPID, which is is all about decision-making. And God, I should have looked up my name because I always forget what the RAPID stands for, but you can look it up online. But you want a communication act. RACI in about who's going to do what, but also something about how we go about make decisions. And using that to clarify, not to be the hard and fast rule, but to clarify how we're going to have these conversations. Because that's what you're trying to set up with this vendor. Because this is a long-term success you're looking for. You're looking for a really great working software. You're not looking for a great contract. Side story here. I was working with a company and they were they had outsourced the development of some software to a company on the other side of the planet. And they were having all kinds of difficulty. And I was meeting with um, one of the leaders of this company. And I said, it looks like your software is in trouble. He says, no, it's not. So what do you mean, <laughs> no, it's not? I, he said, because I have a great contract. I have a contract that's binding and they have to deliver. And I said, your goal isn't to have a great contract. Your goal is to get working software that you can ship your product to your customers and make money that way, not enforcing the contract. Um, and I heard from them six months later, and the whole thing had gone south because even though they had a great contract and they can inform, you know, impose all kinds of penalties, that wasn't getting them working software. Hammers don't always so, work, right? Yeah, right. And this is this is sort of leads to this really interesting point that that several clients brought up is that your internal staff they should see themselves not as contract managers or vendor managers, i.e. make you do what you said we're going to do, but vendor enablers. How do we get this vendor on board and working as efficiently as possible so we can ship the product we want to ship, not how do we make a great contract? So vendor enablers rather than vendor managers or vendor management. That's a great way to say it. It's a subtle thing. Yeah, it is, though. But it's it's a way to think about it. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about consistent and regular communications here, and we – over the course of the, the, the seasons that we've had with this podcast, this issue has come up so many times. We certainly have talked about 
communications and things like that with Steve McConnell's uh, more effective agile, the, the notion of commander's intent, you know, when you can't always be mm-hmm. in every boat in your, in, in your fleet, you have to be able to give them intent and then set direction uh, and make sure people follow those kind of things. So, you know, these are all leading back to human beings, right? And so it's a shame that human beings didn't get, get in the way of progress here, right? I mean, if we didn't have humans, <laughs> we wouldn't have these issues. Funny. <laughs> So anyway, the, the next principle. Human beings are the progress, but yeah, I know, I know, that's right. We're and they're also the bane of defending it, right? ourselves against the AI tidal wave that's coming. Right. Um, yeah. The next principle you build is the idea of um, this notion of a balanced scorecard. And those of you who know Steve McConnell, you know he has talked about that in, in his productivity uh, keynotes over the years. We actually did a keynote at our Constructs Leadership Summit a few years ago about team-level productivity, and talked at length about this notion of a balanced scorecard. So why don't you, for those who, who maybe don't know what that what that is, and it, it, I don't think it's a Steve McConnell-invented thing. It's been out there a while, but just refresh our memory about what this entails and, and why it might matter here. Yeah, so there's there's balanced scorecard with a TM behind it for a trademark, and I'm not really talking about that one. Right. Because uh, the balanced scorecard with a trademark behind it has sort of injury for leading our organization. When we talk about balanced scorecard here, little b, little s, maybe if you think about it, is really the idea of you need a set of measures. You need you need a set of collective ideas to help really tell if this is working. Um, and because if you took just one measure like on timeness, well, yeah, it could be on time, but it could be garbage on time. And but it was on time, and that's the only thing they're getting scored by. So you need things like how the uh, you know, timeness, um, um, the overall quality of it, and. One of the ones we're setting up with one of my clients is how many – the escalations between the vendor and the – when something's not working between the vendor and the internal, is it escalated timely and correctly? I.e., are you telling us when we need to know very quickly, but are you solving things you should have been able to solve at the lower level? That is, you didn't raise things up that you could have solved by yourselves. Right. Right. So here's here's a couple, two metrics on that. It's just one area to help get the balance to make sure that you've got a big enough picture. Because we know, right, what what you start paying attention to, what you're measuring and saying we're tracking, that's the stuff that's going to get the attention. That's the thing that we're, people are going to focus on. And so you can you want to adjust that. And you want to have that both on your internal team and the external team and on that relationship to make sure that it's balanced across all that. Yes, externals, you need to perform, but they often are at the mercy of getting stuff from the internal team. Because you want to work this as a team. This is a partnership, not a truly outsourced kind of world here. Right. Right. right? So we're not looking at just a deliverable form. It's like, how is this new team with the external partner and my internal team working together? So having things like, are you solving issues very quickly? Are you getting things done on time? Are you doing decent amounts of scope of work? That's what the balance has to go through. And having that worked on between you and your team is really important. Yeah, and I, I can envision that in certain situations, uh, an internal team might be uh, incredibly critical of, of external activities and maybe start tracking and keeping score of things. And you just you don't want that happen. You do want balance, right? Right, right, and 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 having the internal side owning a little bit of it. Right, right. I think. I mean, this gets back to the metrics messaging again, right? And and that's something that we certainly have talked about frequently on inspect and adapt. And 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 in fact, you have worked with teams on uh, on agile team metrics, for example, a lot, right? In your consulting and mentoring, and so the mm-hmm. the corrective actions here are really quite similar, right? 
Well, any kind of metrics, you really want to start with saying, what is it that I'm trying to learn? What's the question I have that I want answered? And this is why you need to look at the relationship. And this is really a great place to involve both your internal staff and the partner to come up, what are the questions we want measures to answer? What are the questions you should be asking of yourself? Because that will start their juices flowing to be thinking about, oh, how do we want to work together? What kind of good questions there? So bringing them in to ask those questions. And then once you get those questions, then come up with the measures that sort of say, here's what I'll be watching, right, to see if we're to get the answers to these questions. And then you can go and say, okay, what kind of pace do we need to continue to make ourselves look at this? Because setting it up is one thing, but if you don't set a cadence or a pace to look at these things and say, how are we doing? Then they get background noise because there's always a fire to fight, a new issue to come up with. So you got to force yourself to look at these things on a regular basis to keep that emphasis going and to help that relationship. So, so in the scrum world, we talk about retrospectives. Maybe in this case, you'd want to do, you want to set some formality associated with, um, you know, with doing this in terms of what kind of cadence you might set up. Say every quarter, you might check in and make sure that things are still in the same. You know, in the same place yeah, you thought. Monthly, quarter, yeah. six weeks, something like that. It, it's not weekly. It's not daily, I don't think. Um, I, with the one client I'm working with, we set it up quarterly. Okay. Right. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So let's move on to the next principle, um, which is one you call showing respect to the customer buyer. And, and so let's define, you know, what terms are here, what, what you are really talking about. By customer, you're talking about the internal development staff. And what you're saying here is that there's sometimes some kind of arrogance or superiority of output by the partner. Am I, am I parsing that correctly? Yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting is when you're working with a vendor, there's usually people like you, Mark, uh, who are leading the vanguard of customer relationships. And they're very respectful, right? They come on and they're very good saying, guys, look like you're a good shop and all this kind of stuff. But their technical staff, their technical staff is usually really good technical staff, which means they have all the fails and fallibles of technical staff, which is often <laughs> my stuff's great. Your stuff is garbage, <laughs> right? Not that you. Um, and so they'll yeah. come in and while the, the leadership of the vendor is great, the, the staff will come in and look and go, well, what the hell were you guys thinking? Sometimes, right? This, so they have a not of engineer and they can really put off the internal staff. And so one of the things you need to do is start saying, okay, you got to work with that. You got to say, your guys are smart, but you got to help those technical people, not the leaders so much, but the technical people really show some respect for the work that's been done over and over again by the people who've been doing it for the last, you know, maybe decade or so. Interesting. And you really want to, you want that, that relationship to start right because you want the internal staff to assume good intent of the vendor because if they start knocking on their stuff, they're going to start into the defensive position. They hate everything. They're the enemy. And you want the vendor to, to have good intent of the internals, right? Assume good intent. Because this is something to teach you in like relationship 101 is that when you really want to work with someone, you have to assume they're thinking good thoughts rather than assume that they're thinking bad thoughts, going back to the marriage therapy. Kind of thing. It's marriage therapy, right? Yeah, exactly. Marriage counseling. Not that you and I have been practicing that for <laughs> I, you were married the same year I was, right? So we've still have so. we have decades and decades of practice under our belts. That's right. And we still have to practice. <laughs> still have to practice every day. Maybe we should set that cadence measurement up a little yeah. more quickly for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> every exactly. 20 minutes. So, right. um, yeah. So, yeah. So getting, that, getting that, that technical staff to acknowledge that the work they've done to date is important, is really important here. Yeah. So, so 
you know, from what I hear, the right actions to take here, and I'll take a stab at these, is that you, you want to be coaching uh, that partner um, to find some work to acknowledge to say, hey, well done by the eternal staff. It's sort of a, you know, compliment, you know, even though there's issues and you guys are fighting through project issues and th- things like that, you know, find something to say to say positive about it. And then, and then, you know, maybe even include that kind of cadence and those kinds of activities as a component of the partner's scorecard. Is that, does that seem to make sense? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to say well done, all right? If it is garbage, it really is garbage. <laughs> but you got to at least recognize that a lot of effort and sweat and toil went into that thing. Um, and, and, and at least respect the work. Mm-hmm. And just don't tell them they did nothing but garbage. It's like, yeah, I could see that this was really difficult. It looks like you struggled here and here and here. It looks like you found a solution. I think we can improve that a little bit, but wow, that was pretty inventive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I didn't say it was good, <laughs> but I did at least recognize the work going inventive. Into that. Now, there's a guarded term. <laughs> so, um, the next principle to me, and, and I was just looking at all the ones that you've kind of uncovered, and this might be second to the communication to the communications one in my book. But and, and we're going to stay in, in that touchy feely area of engineers that they love so much, right? And you call this one promote employee happiness. And and I'm I'm certainly I'm sure this is going to be a real issue. And I think you're. Uh, I remember you saying that this one really was the catalyst for your research, right? It's really what 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 kind of springboard you into thinking about this and looking around for different clients. Right. So the overall stress level, how to reduce the stress, was the catalyst. This one is a little bit a tweak, a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of this one is that in the vendor partnership, it is kind of what it is. But the vendor partnership is not your entire employee, internal employee's engagement. There's other things they're doing for you that just working this vendor relationship. And there you have an opportunity as a leader to find ways to make their lives a little bit better, right? So, uh, for example, one client I'm working with, uh, they had a gentleman who was managing a, a, a vendor partner. But he was also doing some other work. And in that other areas where he was doing some architectural stuff, they made life a little bit easier for him. They got him the tools he was looking for, or they sent him little notes now and then saying, hey, we saw that you were you did this. That looks like excellent work. Thank you. So they were really pushing the areas outside of the vendor relationship that they had more control of to help that feel better. So with the internal staff, because they're shaky and they're a little bit on an emotional roller coaster with the new vendor partnership, find things that they are already doing internally and help shore up those concerns in the areas that you can while they still are kind of shaky with the vendor part. Because you can't really do much because that's that's your strategic direction, right? You want to use a vendor. But you have other things they're doing that you can say, well, I can make it better over in this other place rather than the vendor place because the vendor is what it is. Okay. I mean, I mean, that really makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it seems like that, 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 it's a scary place, right, for some people that, that to, to, to actually do it and, and then just, to, you know, and hoping that the, that the folks who are participating in that really see the value of what you're saying and what you're doing. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a number of ways that you can resolve this, right, that there's some team activities that make everybody feel like here's the new definition of team, right, and sometimes that gets old, but, but you know, it really is what you're trying to do here, right? You're trying to set up some kind of a, uh, a thing that makes everybody feel good, feel comfortable. Right, right. And this is stuff you probably may be doing already, right? Uh, if you don't have a morale budget for your internal staff, you might want to have one anyhow, just to focus on building them up during this time. 
In fact, one of the clients I shared with this is the sponsoring client of this initial research really latched onto this part. This is something he thought they could do immediately to start making things more positive, right? Create some more morale budget, start doing little things to help move them forward. Uh, and there's lots of things you could do that are not very expensive. One of my favorite books is 1001 Ways to Reward Employees by Bob Nelson. And just one of the things he, I love that he does, he says, what you do is, is when you first bring an employee or maybe in the, after a while, have them fill out a card with seven to 10 things that they like that are under 25 US dollars or something like that. Hmm. And when they do something that you, you thought was positive, you go to the card and find them something that they like. You acquire it because it's cheap, and then you give them a thank you note, a handwritten thank you note with this little gift saying, I noticed you did this. I really appreciate it. I know you like these here. So you wouldn't put things right. like minivan or, or motorcycle, or <laughs> that probably wouldn't work too well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right now, I'm just looking for maybe a, a vaccination uh, slot. <laughs> a COVID slot. There you go. Well, that would be... <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll date this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and that, I mean, that's... It's kind of funny, but I mean, I mean, post-COVID environment, you certainly would think about events, right? You could take people out right. for different kinds of team building events. And, and, and really, you do want to be focused on the future, right? You want, because you, this is, again, we're looking at a partnership, not necessarily play, but we're building and you want to make sure you build this future. So you got to make sure that your internal employees feel comfortable as they can, even though the vendor is a new scary thing. Right. Yeah. Well, those are all good. Those are all, I think those are all really interesting things to think about. So the last principle um, you want to highlight for us today is this idea that, that at some point, no matter how good things are, the relationship might get stuck. And, and what this means is this idea you called being optimistic about constraints. So give us the main idea there. What are you talking about there? Right. So being optimistic about constraints Often organizations that that are going to go to a vendor partnership are usually not your startup organizations, right? They're the usually ones agile, can do everything. They haven't got any rules they're making up as they go. What I'm seeing this more often is my, I want to call them old school or manufacturing organizations, the, the companies that, that list their years in uh, centuries kind of thing right, that they've been around for a long, long time, they have tons of rules, tons of constraints placed upon them because there was a problem in 1978 that they needed to come up with a new procedure to solve, and they've been following it ever since. <laughs> wow. Um, and so they have all these constraints, and they have these different organizations that all have a different piece of the pie. And what I see over and over is that when someone tries something new, three or four voices come saying, well, we have a policy that says we have to do it this way, and then you go to the people who write the policy. Well, we have this policy because we were told we have to write it by these people. And you go to those people and say, we had this problem back in 1978, right? And then off you go. And so too many organizations become fatalistic about that. They start looking at that and saying, oh, we can't do these things because we have these policies in place. We're stuck. We can't possibly move. Right. And you have to start thinking, gosh, what problems was that really solving? Was that problem really from 1978 and we're still following it? It may have worked really well and still may work well, but is it, is it appropriate for this particular relationship that we're having with the customer overall and start analyzing that way? So it's not so much being stuck in the vendor partner relationship, though. I think that's a really interesting point. We need to think about that a little bit more, but that's also what it with this particular one was. Too many organizations are being blocked from doing what they need to do to take full advantage of this partnership by some rule or constraint placed upon them in the organization that has nothing to do with this particular vendor relationship. Right. I mean, and I, and I think there's, uh, 
I think the the industry suffers from that greatly, right? There's lots of these things where the for for a long time these particular elements of operating procedures have stuck forever, and and they're just there, right? And and nobody revisits them. Nobody thinks about why are we still doing this, right? So, well, and what's funny? I was working. I'm working with this one company. Um, and they have that kind of situation, and everybody wants to change it. Everyone, the people who wrote it wants it, wants it changed. The people following it wants it changed. But no one, no one person has the authority to change it themselves. Yeah. So they seem stuck, right? There's like, well, we, we, we could change it, but then we have to have someone write it, and that has to get approval from over here. And it's like, oh, man, can we just do everyone wants to do the right thing but no one feels like they're allowed to do the right thing and so we've got to find a way out of this and this is where you know everybody's going to be somewhat unique right that the way out of the stuckiness um it has to be uh somewhat unique so the brainstorming is something we're gonna have to do right. here um, and just just the act of letting the team brainstorm is going to free them up i mean i've seen this over and over again where i take a team into a brainstorming session and I get them actually brainstorming and get them wild and crazy. And we don't actually do any of the things that were on the brainstorm list, but I start hearing stories of things improving because it finally freed them up to at least say the to things. Say, talk first out of all. loud, sure. Talk it out loud, make it out loud, make it see that there's a common ideas in the room. And then they start sub, sub, you know, sub, what is that? Subverting it, right? What is whatever that word is? Right? We'll they, go with that. They start going around that constraint. They start doing workarounds around that constraint, or they start trying to pilot, say, we're going to pilot something here, because they start filling those creative juices, and they start in finding ways, even though the brainstorming itself didn't identify a certain way, it starts a sort of flow in that direction that they start doing things and getting a workaround, and then maybe coming back with the, oh, maybe forgiveness is easier than permission kind of thing. It's like, oh, yeah, we got yelled at. Because really, what's the worst that's going to happen typically if you violate one of those procedures? Someone's going to take it off and say, you're violating this procedure, you need to stop. And you'll go, oh, wow, but look at the results we had. But if you want to stop, we can do that. Sure. I mean, I mean, it, this is really all about making the effort to try new things and, and having, and, and I guess when you say, when, when you have permission to fail, which is another one of these things we talk about with agile teams, right? Allow them to try new things. You know, what's the worst that could happen? You're successful or it's not, or, you know, you have to say, well, that constraint, we just figured out why that constraint was there. You know, we have, right. to, we have to keep that. So, or, and, and even if you did figure out why it was there, perhaps you can say, well, okay, let's update it to at least address the current realities and put some of that logic in here so we don't have to learn it once again when you come down another five years ago. Why the hell are we doing this? Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, I think these are great principles. Um, and I think you, uh, I think we have some time left here in, in, in the podcast to, to touch on a few case studies because I know that you have, you know, obviously as a result of talking to these clients, you got some ideas of, of some of their examples of what they're doing. So maybe, maybe it would help to illustrate that that these thing, you know, what we're talking about today is not academic exercises, but things that really happen to real teams and real partners that all had good intentions, right? So I'll throw out the first one. You you had one you called the aggressive partner, and, and I'm sure everybody kind of there. There's a bunch of heads nodding as people listen to this. Uh, tell us how that problem manifested and, and what the internal company did to remedy the situation. Well, this was a a, a large uh, multinational energy company, and they were working with a couple different partners. We'll call them partner A and partner B. Uh, both partners were doing 
somewhat of a staff augmentation, but they were taking over certain areas of the business. So it wasn't just pure bodies, but it was focused bodies, I guess maybe you could put it that way. Partner A uh, would come up and say, what do you need? Uh, and they would say, we would need these many people working on this project, doing this kind of thing. And they would come up with a team and they would do it. And they would just wait for the next request. Partner B, however, it was different. Partner B started out with, what do you need? And they came with partner. But their partners on the ground and even their sales ship would keep going around to other divisions saying, we can help you with this. We can help you with that. We can solve this problem for you. And they just irritated the heck out of, of the client company. They just became a overall burden because they kept trying to shove their noses into everything. And this is very common with some, some consulting firms. I used to joke that when I was working back in the day with consultants that their number one job seemed to be finding their number two job. Right. Absolutely. Uh, the next gig, not actually delivering on my current gig, but finding the next gig. And this partner B was like an aggressive partner. And so this particular client decided to fire Partner B said, you know, we're not going to work with you anymore. We're not going to deal with this anymore. We're going to stick with and give all the work to partner A, the one who was just say, tell us what you need and we'll figure out a way to do it and left us alone until we had the next need. Okay. So that was the idea here. So, so the, so the key there is just really what I really took away from that little case study was this idea of being truly listening and understanding the partnership, right? Working the relationship, not just working the jobs and trying to find one way to bleed the other. Because I see this over and over again, when one side really tries to make it off the other, right? Whether it's the vendor trying to get as much uh, work out of the client or the client trying to get the best possible deal, right? We've run into that, Mark, where you get the finance and we've got a good product. We've sold it lots of times. And next one group says, we need to do it for one third of the price that you usually charge. It's like, right? what? I'm sorry, you're breaking up. (laughs) Yeah, right. But you're not working the relationship. And when we're talking partners here, we really are talking relationships. We're not really talking one-time, you know, I mean, one-time transactions go for it. But if you really want a long-term partner who's going to help you deliver software, watch the aggressive part. Sure. I mean, to me, there's a part of this one that actually talks to your um, transparency of purpose principle, right? I mean, the need for better clarity when you set the relationship up, what that what the role that partner is going to play, boundaries on what that partner is going to do. Um, internal staff need to understand what those expectations are too. And I'm sure if I think if if I just think about that scenario, that partner manager was probably pretty shocked at being fired, right? Yeah, because yeah, he thought, thought he was doing the right thing. Right? He's trying to help. He's spreading spreading the love around, kind of thing. And it really wasn't what the what the the internal staff and the, and the folks that hired him were really looking for. Well, yeah, and. Just because the way they do that often is they ask for meeting time, right? It's not like they're, they they offer, they ask for, hey, could I have a meeting with you? And they start pitching something or they say, hey, we've noticed this. But now the meetings are sucking up time. That's, I think, was the higher aggression of that one. It was just, you're sucking up my time and bandwidth. And then I have to find a way to say no to you because you're my partner. I don't want to have to say no to you and then have those negative things. But I have to keep saying no, go away, shut up. <laughs> Wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. You can have a nice meeting. Come on, I bring donuts. Right. <laughs> I mean, at least buy me lunch. Yes, absolutely. Well, they probably can't if the partner's stuff yeah. is structured yeah. right. But well, and, and this is true with the bigger companies too. You cannot. Uh, there's usually a rule in place that you cannot accept anything of value from a vendor. Right. 
Exactly. All right. So how about one more case study? Um, you had a case where ownership of the work was internal, but the development and delivery was really completely done by the partners. And what, what happened in that case study? What happened in that example? Well, this was, uh, I think you're referring to my uh, uh, international retailer. And right. one of the things uh, that they wanted to do is they wanted to really uh, empower their internal team. They wanted to, uh, they really took the own the products to the ultimate level. That is that they wanted a vendor to come in, help them develop it, help them initially run it. But they were always clear that the long-term goal was always for the vendor to hand the work back to the internal team. The internal team was responsible for the long-term care and maintenance of the product that the vendor was going to build. And so it wasn't just you're going to build it and you get to own us forever. It's that there's going to be a handoff back. And so what they did is that they, in their contract, and here's this idea for the clear, clear contextual and the transparency purpose, said, we're going to, your contract is not just develop the product with us and be our partner that way, but you also have to have a transition plan about how you're going to make our people understand. Mm. And you get a say about when you think our people are ready to take over, but we're not going to fully listen to what you're going to say because we're going to use that 80-20 rule kind of thing where our people are mostly there, we're right. going to cut you off, Right. Um, and this was working out very well for both the vendor partners because they have this ability to plan and go forward. But it's working out even more for the retailer, right? That they can say, yes, we know this. And then their people can feel more comfortable going into this because they're looking going, okay, we know this is going to be handed off to us. Even though they're doing all the the interesting development work, we know that we're going to get it. And we're in our, our, our jobs are not at stake. Our, we know the long-term goals and where we're going. Right. I mean, you use the phrase retained decision authority, which I think is a really way, a good way to kind of capsulize that, right? You want that to be the case. Right. And there's just those things you really need to own, the things that really say, what is our business? What is our, where do we want to place our bets? Rather than saying, we're just going to bet on the vendor and hopefully they'll come through for us. Right. Cool. So one last word today, I thought, um, you know, we've talked about the principles. We talked about some case studies. How about some some tools people can use to help with these principles? You know, you know some things you've learned in your consulting and mentoring that have been helpful to you. And, um, you know, I think maybe we have, we, we, Mr. Producer, we can add some links into the, the notes for this podcast that people can share. But, um, you know, maybe talk about some things that you have run into over the years that you think are really good things for these kinds of environments. Well, yeah, I mentioned the Bob Nelson book already. Right. Um, uh, one of our other TSPs really likes using what he calls current reality trees. These are just like uh, Ishikawa diagrams or other things, but current reality trees uh, give you a little bit more nuance in that you can have ands and ors between different layers or decompositions of a of a problem. So that's a really nice thing. So you're looking going, what do we need help here? We need help here and we need help there or or this or that. Those are very helpful. Okay. Um, for those working with vendors for the first time, uh, you really should uh, either take a negotiation class or use a book like Getting to Yes by Fisher, Uri, and others. Uh, Getting to Yes has always been a perennial favorite just because it's, it's a book designed for non-negotiators when you're into negotiation. And for a lot of software, my a lot of software engineering friends, I like to joke there's a reason we like to work with computers. Right. Yes. The computer yes. doesn't try to negotiate with us. We can yell at it and it doesn't get upset. Absolutely. Um, if you're using uh, objectives and key results, that can be okay for this kind of stuff. 
more importantly, I think you want to get down and dirty things like checklists um, or uh, quality standards to help judge the contribution is going to be important. Because if you create a checklist, these are the things we're going to be looking for. We, we don't know exactly the output, but here's the kind of things we'll be looking for. really helps them grow the right thing as well. Okay. And then for that internal staff, uh, you know, if you can get some sort of professional growth path for them, uh, I know that here at Constructs, we, we, we did our own uh, professional development ladder uh, for a little bit. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's worked well for us. It's worked well for a lot of our clients. But any kind of professional growth saying, hey, you know what? Maybe because we're now working with the vendor partner, you're not going to be a coder X7, right? You don't have that coding thing left to you. But what we do have is that we have this role of, of vendor architect, Right? Where can you grow in your role, even though some of these jobs that we used to have for you are now being done by a vendor? We have to help enable that vendor. So here are jobs that we are creating that are vendor enablement jobs that you could grow into that have even more authority, more responsibility than what you currently have yeah, today. Maybe it's a role option for them, right? Right, because a lot of technical people want this ability to say about the technical solution. And you know, some of them really want to write code and God bless them. But a lot of them <laughs> just want to say, this is the technology. Help choose the right technology and then watch it work and then watch it actually deliver value. Sure, sure. Now, maybe, Mr. Producer, maybe we can put a link to the Constructs Professional Development Letter white paper that Steve McConnell authored in, in the notes as well. That might be something that people might want to look at. Yeah. Well, excellent, Earl. I think we're I think we're at the end of the time today on this episode. Thank you so much for your research on this topic and for illuminating what is certainly a common set of problems in the real world of making um, things work with partners. Hopefully our listeners yeah, have maybe, a good maybe, set. Maybe the producer could put a, a link to the white paper up there too. Yeah, absolutely. We can certainly do that. It's a, 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 another parallel universe to read about this stuff. So great job, Earl. Yeah, because, you know, technical people when they write something want it actually be used. Like ha, you? Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. You're, you are one of the most, <laughs> our most prolific authors. You know that. So I do oh, appreciate yeah, right. I absolutely appreciate it. People that wrote books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's a lot more work, right? That's a lot. You more like the quick, the, the quick, yes, the quick, happy. That's what you look for. Yeah. Well, thanks Earl. I appreciate your time. Guy. This has been really, really helpful. Well, you, you'll come back for, for something in the near future, right? I'm sure you, I'm sure I will. you've got some stuff in the jar. We should do that. All right. That's a wrap. Um, be sure to tune in again for another episode of inspect and adapt the constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Um, I just found out the famous Liz Ostaszewski, whose signature is on the Mars Perseverance rover, has been our audio engineer, and Devin Musgrave is our fearless producer. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever you normally find us. If you have ideas for a future podcast or comments on this one, or you'd like to talk to one of our practitioners about this or other topics, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. Really, we'd love to hear from you. So keep staying safe out there, everybody, and have a great next sprint.